Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Uh, today you have, this is J.J. Cooper with Will Lingo. And we don't often on Monday have relatively breaking news to discuss, but, but this week we kind of do because we all were spending Friday night, you know, the last 10 minutes of before the signing deadline was one of those crazy moments for Baseball America where, you know, it, it's kind of like the trade deadline. We didn't know Manny Ramirez was traded until, you know, a couple minutes after the mm-hmm. trade deadline. Well, on you know, on Friday night, we're sitting there, and there's nine players unsigned, and there's seven players unsigned, and then midnight comes, and it's like, okay, so how many of them did get signed? Yeah, and it, uh, part of it is because everybody seems to wait till the very last minute to do these things. Uh, in the aftermath, we're starting to see people talking about, you know, what what happened in the last 10 to 15 minutes before the deadline, and it's amazing uh, you were talking about reading something regarding Scott Boris and the Pirates, how Scott Boris was, you know, sort of couching it as the Pirates wouldn't answer their phone. I was reading a Jim Bowden interview in the Washington Post where he was couching it as the Hendricks brothers wouldn't answer their phone, uh, trying to get Aaron Crow signed. So I think the deadline does, you know, push teams to – or push both sides to try to push the other side right up to the wall to to the point where you just want to say, uncle – so you get a guy signed either to get the commission or to get talent in your organization. And pretty much everybody does blink at some point, except for this year we actually had a few uh, first-rounders who didn't sign. Which, that's something we used to actually see a good bit of. I mean, if you go way before, I mean, really before we even knew the word, what the word slotting was, it was a pretty common occurrence. Something you don't see that much anymore it seemed like there were two opposite ends of the spectrum in that Aaron Crow was a case that neither side blinked. And, I, you know, I, I guess the best way I can put it is it seems like that no one comes out looking good out of this. It seems like that there's about a $500,000 difference at the right. end. And so if you're Aaron Crow, it means that you're risking your financial future for $500,000 when you were going to get, say, $3.5 million to $3.75 million. And if you're the Nationals... It's saying that you let a top ten talent go because you were willing to risk that for five hundred thousand. Right. Um, it does seem like sometimes egos can get in the way. For whatever reason, it did seem like the Hendricks brothers took a hard line to negotiating with Aaron Crow. Uh, according, again, all I've read is the Jim Bowden accounts at right. this point, so we don't know what the other side of the story is. But at least according to him. Uh, Aaron Crow's number was $9 million until the very end of the process. The team started negotiating. I think the Nationals started somewhere in the slot range around two, you know, the low $2 million range. That's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, distance there when you've got <laughs> right. $7 million to work out. Right. So you have, you know, three months where, two months, where you're $7 million apart. Then you start getting down to brass tacks, as they say. Um, and it sounds like the Hendricks came down into the $4 million range, and the Nationals got up into the $3 million range. There was also a major league contract apparently thrown into all this discussion. The Nationals abandoned that when they weren't going to get him signed in time to get an MRI on his elbow and shoulder, figuring if you get the guy signed to a major league contract and he does have a problem, you're going to look really stupid for not doing that. So... Uh, eventually it sounds like they did get within $500,000 of a bonus amount and then just neither side blinked and 
Aaron Crow gets to play in <laughs> for he'll, the Fort Worth Cats, he'll be, apparently. He'll be uh, joining the ranks of, you know, have to eventually have a ranking of what is the top pitching prospect to come through for the Fort Worth Cats. And it's going to be a tough ranking. You've yeah. got Scherzer, you've got uh, Hochaver, and now you've got Aaron Crow. So last year, I think the top unsigned pick was James Darnell at 69. The year before that... Oh, I'm sorry, not James Darnell. That was this year. Uh, Joshua Fields, who's unsigned this year as well. <laughs> Although in his case, let's make it clear, he still could sign. He's right. a college senior. So. He doesn't belong in, in the group of three first-rounders who haven't signed. Um, and then in 06, the first pick that didn't sign was number 58, I think, Sean Black. So to have three guys out of the first round unsigned at this point is unusual for for and recent draft history. Let's say with Garrett Cole, it seems like it was a little bit of a different situation. It it's one of those things. It's hard to ever say with the Yankees. Oh, they, you know, they wouldn't come up with the money to get a guy signed. In Cole's case, it really sounds like that he had kind of all along been thought to be a tough sign and had been thought that he might go to college. Well, sounds like really what happened is is that he ended up signing. He, he really wanted, to go, wanted to, college. to go to college, and the Yankees didn't want to break the bank to sign him. So, yeah, he was a little bit of an unusual case in that it didn't seem to come down to the last minute. It just seemed like both sides decided, you know, this isn't going to work out. Let's let's walk away from it. Uh, every other guy did get his money at the last minute, as happened last year with the signing deadline. I don't know what both – if you talk to a lot of people on both sides, I don't know what they would say about how the signing deadline functions. Based on what we've seen, it seems like it functions to drive up prices a lot at the end for it, the guys at the top of the draft. It, it does seem like, you know, the, the original reason a signing deadline was brought in, there was really, I guess, two reasons, it seems like. one The biggie was is that there was thought by Major League Baseball that this would increase the team's leverage driving down bonuses and, you know, because there would be this deadline. Instead of, I mean, in the past we've seen with, you know, with top prospects where – it lasted up right until you know right, May 30th. On and on and on. You know, I mean, like and for we, that, we actually thank Major League Baseball. Yes, we do. It, it does, was always annoying. It does compact the process for us. It creates an event. You know, the signing deadline is a new event on the Baseball America calendar. As our traffic on the website shows, there are people who are interested in it. Um, you know, you can tell the story about the excitement generated around our, our draft blog on Friday night as people were trying to find out, you know, who signed and who didn't. Well, for the rest of the day, I mean, we had, you know, good traffic throughout the day, you know, for the you know people checking on the signing deadline. But then in that 10-minute span, well, 20-minute span from 11.50 until 12.10, you know, I think there was about a minute there where our blog actually broke for a minute because – Everyone who was on it, understandably, was hitting reload, and so right. it was kept just getting hit over and over. I mean, we got to kind of the traffic that we see come draft day, which draft day traffic for us is at a level beyond anything else throughout the year because, you know, there's so much interest. It it was for that, you know, 20-minute span because the deadline hits. It's midnight, and... You either sign or you don't sign. And, and there's that 10 minutes of tracking down who did. I've always wondered with Scott Boris. Scott Boris doesn't have... You know, one player who's coming close to the deadline. He right. has multiple. I, I know he has many lieutenants <laughs> who are also involved in this. But at the same time, if you're a top ten pick, you don't really want to have lieutenants handling your right. negotiation. I've always I would be fascinated to know how he handles this because you can only be on maybe two phone calls. You know, at yeah, it would be interesting to go behind the curtain on that one just to see what. 
what draft deadline night was like this year because, like you said, he did have so many guys. It's like, no, 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 I have to have Hosmer wrapped up by 11.59 because i got to spend 11.59 to 12 on the Pedro Alvarez call. I mean, you know, I don't know how exactly that... And Joshua Fields, fortunately, does get to wait a little while. He is more of the traditional signing path uh, since he doesn't have any college eligibility left. He could theoretically go up until a week before next year's draft, which we hope doesn't happen. But... you know, when we're talking about this, though, it does seem like, I mean, the talk was is that this would give the teams increased negotiation power. And the reality is, is that what we're seeing is, is that signing bonuses are still escalating. I mean, this year they escalated significantly. You know, the slot, more teams seem to be realizing that sticking to slot is really just stupidity in a lot of times. I mean, there's, there's some reasons to keep your budget in check, but... It would be interesting, again, to talk to a lot of not just scouting directors, but people higher than scouting directors, about what they think slotting is supposed to do and whether it's done that. Because, I mean, the overwhelming majority of players at the top of the draft do sign for slot money. So, in a way, I think maybe that does make it easier for teams to deal with the majority of the players they draft. Because you can point to a number and say, this is the number you're supposed to sign for. And most guys are going to be happy with that. But... In the first round, I think it really just almost doesn't apply. My, the one thing I do have, though, is that, we yes, bonuses have escalated. And this is probably beyond – I'm probably giving Major League Baseball too much, you know, cleverness here. But I wonder if by doing it with slotting, while they're rising, they're not rising at the rate they would be if it was just an absolute think, free-for-all. I think you're right. If you look at the slots for the last three years, um, there were s- – it was 114 million. This is looking at the top five rounds for this year, which is 172 picks. The top five rounds are different numbers based on how many supplemental picks you have. But this year it was 172 picks. This year the slot recommendations for those picks were 119.9 million dollars. Last year the same number of picks. The recommendation was 103.1 million. That was the year they really tried to drive down bonuses. And so you, you saw big inflation this year. I mean, the year before that, though, the slot recommendations were 114 million. So if you look at it over three years, you know you're you're really staying close to the same, except that they blew slot up this year. Um, the slots were 119.9. I said that was the recommendation. What actually was handed out in those 172 picks was 135.8 million, which is 13 percent over the slot recommendations, and is 20 million more than what we saw. It was 114.5 million last year. Right. So we saw. So that's significant inflation, um, and 30. Th- you also saw a lot more players sign 10 percent. Signed for overslot deals this year. What I consider overslot is more than 10% over the slot. There are some guys that are close on either side. I don't think that's really significant. But 33 players out of the first 172 signed overslot deals, which is really double two years ago and almost double last year when it was 19. So, One of the questions I've always had is this, if you do sign for slot, and there's nothing against, you know, I mean, for a lot of guys, if I'm, you know, a potential second round pick and a team calls, you know, the supplemental first and says, hey, we'll sign you for slot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my question is, is if you've decided that you're a guy who's going to sign for slot, what is the purpose of having an agent? That is a really good question. What is the purpose uh, of cutting a check to somebody like, to. The only thing I can think of is that most 
players and their families aren't sophisticated enough to understand the process the way we do since we've been in it for so long. Now, again, speaking for myself, if my son were going through the process, Joe Lingo, class of the, I was going to say draft class of 2018. So, something like that, yeah. So, I would get sophisticated about it and then just hire a lawyer to look over the deal and pay them on an hourly basis. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you can, it's like an NBA deal. I don't understand why NBA if, players have, if you especially. say, I mean, because the slot number is not like, yes, you. Do want to make sure that the team, when they come and say they're going to offer you slot, that they offer you actually slot. Mm-hmm. But those numbers are out there. I mean, uh, a subscription to BaseballAmerica.com <laughs> will provide that number. Right. You know, and at that point, I mean, I, in, unless you're talking about making sure that you get the inducements as far as like, you know, okay, you know, your scholarship money and all, but that seems like that's pretty straightforward. And maybe there's, you know, that you get to have, you know, uh, single room in your third year of you know spring training or, <laughs> or a September call up you know or, but but if all you're, the bells and whistles right. really aren't that important to me but the reality of it is is that you're talking about yeah it just doesn't seem like that there's a whole lot of reason to cut a percentage of your you know and that's not to say agents look if you're a minor league baseball player I mean you having an agent is a very useful thing because you need someone who kind of is your representative yeah. but when it comes to negotiating a slot deal, if they say, hey, slot's 125000 and you say, I'll sign for slot, there's not a lot of give and take there. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure we'll hear from agents explaining yeah. why that's a good and idea. Like I said, we're posing the question. I'm not saying there's not a reason for an agent to be involved in that, but I would love to know the answer to that. That would be a, you know, interesting uh, to learn. But obviously these guys at the top of the draft who did get significantly above slot deals feel like probably feel like they – Paid their agents for a good reason. Uh, Pedro Alvarez got six million dollars. Eric Hosmer, who we had heard, you know, significant rumors about going up to the deadline that he wasn't going to sign, uh, did sign also for six million. So, you know, two pretty big shots in the arm for the Royals and the Pirates. And Buster Posey, six point two with the Giants. Yeah, also, those those three probably as significant as any three in the draft. And organizations that need that type of talent and probably couldn't have found a better way to spend six million dollars you know if when you're going out looking for talent to spend on you're not going to get a major league player for six million dollars that's why i want to give kudos like the red sox spent over 10 million on the draft this year we're tabulating up the final numbers but over 10 million and that's not that's more than they've ever spent because we've never seen anyone crack the ten million, not counting the year that we had the uh the loophole guys who for, you know, got big money. But if you go outside of that, you know, they, we, we kind of cracked the $10 million barrier, and the Red Sox did it. That's no surprise. The Red Sox have spent money They have definitely decided in, in recent years that they're willing to spend a lot of money on the draft. But the Royals also spent more than $10 million, and the Pirates were not far off of spending $10 million. And to me, for those two teams, kudos to them. I mean, kudos for spending, you know, like spending someone else's money, but kudos to them for spending that money. Because if you're the Pirates, you know, I saw it described in the Post-Gazette, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette this weekend. They spent $10 million to buy out Matt Morris's retirement. <laughs> Compare that yeah. to spending ten, you know, a little less than $10 million to get Pedro Alvarez and multiple more prospects who, I mean, even if they hit on two, three, four of those guys, you know, which is a very good draft but is very, you know, possible because you'd really be shocked if Pedro Alvarez didn't make mm-hmm. it to the big leagues. That's a much better investment. If you look at the Royals, that $10 million, 
is a ton better investment than going out and getting a you know a middle reliever who you'll get for five. Right, and they the Pirates in particular had you know I don't think they had spent ten million dollars combined in the previous two drafts, and I their, mean their farm system shows it. So it, it's it, it's a sign of the Pirates. I mean we, we were talking about Pirates and how there's signs of hope a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and this is another sign that you would now there is. A regime. It's funny that you know Frank Cunnelly is one of the guys who's doing this because his job before he came to the Pirates was to tell teams, no, 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 don't go over slot. Or at least not until the last day. <laughs> but it, it is, yeah. I mean, it's a sign that there's guys there who get it now because spending the money this way looks so much better than deciding, no, we're not going to spend the money to get Matt Weeders and we're going to draft Daniel Moscos. Mm-hmm. I mean. Where would the Pirates be right now if Matt Wieters was, you know, in Altoona, finishing up a year where he's leading, he's among the leaders in pretty much every offensive category. Yeah, and you're saying, okay, well, he's the 2009 starting catcher. That's feel a little bit better than than you would otherwise. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, it is other people's money, and it's hard to say six million dollars is just money well you know that's just easy money to toss off a check but major league baseball has plenty of revenue these these teams are doing well and these teams are the revenue sharing they get the the revenue sharing money that these teams are getting because when we talk royals and pirates we're talking teams who are not contributing to revenue sharing but getting money out of it what it was said when you got that money is that you are to spend that money it's not supposed to go in the owner's pocket it is to spend that money to improve your ball club and give them credit. That's where, you know, if they're taking that revenue-sharing money and they're cutting a check to improve the ball club, there are other teams out there who that's not what they're doing. And, you know, yes, again, it's spending other people's money, but it does make a difference whether you spend money, you know, to develop talent. And let's also give uh, the Rays credit for signing the first pick so quickly and – this might be the uh, last year for a while we see them. Yeah, I, I don't think. You know, <laughs> you know, we can we've been harping say. for years and years about how, yes, it's going to happen in Tampa Bay. They're compiling, too, they're piling up too much talent for it not to happen. And you know, year after year, when they wouldn't win seventy games, it it was hard to believe that day was coming. But I think, oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not only come, but it's. I mean, it's. I do wonder next year. Like you know, we don't know what's this year's going to end up, but. It could be whether they either establish that foundation where, you know, basically they're just they're one of the AL East, you know, competitors for the, you know, going forward. Or even if they take a slight step back next year, like maybe, you know, a couple things don't break as right. They're still, I mean, we're talking about a team that is built that we can say they'll contend for a, you know, pennant this year. They'll contend for a pennant next year. And, and their offense really hasn't even been that great this year. And, you know, Longoria's heard everybody's talked about the injuries they've gone through at the end of the year, and yet they keep on winning with great pitching, really. Great, and that's, great rotation. And how crazy is that to say that the, the Rays are winning with great pitching? Because, because that is what we said was the missing piece for so many years. They would keep, you know, bringing through these great position players, but they were never able to make a real difference because the pitching was always so bad. And this year the pitching has come together and – the Rays are where we and, expected them to be eventually. And give them credit for scouting also. I mean, because, like, in addition to, yes, I mean, you've heard a lot of people say, you know, well, if you have the number one pick or if you have a top five pick and you spend the money year after year, you can't help but get good. And it's, there is some truth that 
the Pirates have proven that no, you, you can have, have a to top pick five. The right you, guy too, you, but you have to pick B.J. Upton instead of Brian Bullington. But beyond that, also like during the off season, like the trades where they said, okay, well they they made a very good assessment of their team and said, what do we need? And they said, you know what, we'll trade Delmon Young and bring in Matt Garza and Jason Bartlett. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is, is that the Twins with Garza, not that they didn't think they had a talent there, but it was something where I mean I think the Twins were quite happy to get Delmon Young. I mean one of the top young talents in the game, you know, prospect wise. You know, who kind of established himself in the major leagues, but still has a lot of ceiling there to go. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of way, long ways to reach the ceiling. But they were happy to make that trade. You look at what you know that trade for the Rays. I mean that's been crucial for them. Like they've pitched, picked up a shortstop who can field, which they need. I mean with the pitching staff they have now, that's what they needed. Mm-hmm. They don't have to put Brendan Harris out there and. In a position you can't really, you know, don't want to play. Don't want to play a guy like that. And then Garza's gone out there, and now they have a rotation. I mean, they've got a very interesting situation that as we head towards the point where David Price is ready to come up, there's no logical, like, if they wanted to plug him into the rotation for that little boost, there's no logical person in that rotation to pull out. No, I think he would just be great in their bullpen. And I think that's what they're going to play, you know, almost as a utility pitcher, just whatever role they need going down the stretch. And also, they a lot of some of their minor deals like Edwin Jackson getting him. I mean, those deserve a lot of credit as well. Oh, to, it's something to be said for we've seen some guys traded. You know, at the trade deadline this year, who you know maybe the the Andy LaRoche is an example. Like the, the star is a little bit off the prospect mm-hmm. compared to what he was a couple of years ago. Maybe he's had some injuries and all. And sometimes those guys don't work out. But at the same time, I mean, that's what when the Rays traded for Edwin Jackson, when they traded for Dianier Navarro, when they trade. They traded for guys who were top prospects who you'd kind of seen some of the flaws in them had kind of come to the surface. And part of that, though, was they had to adjust to the, you know, right. they had to make some adjustments. They've made them. And now, yeah, I mean, that those look like brilliant trades for them. It almost uh, is something I've always called prospect fatigue for organizations. When a guy's been in your organization for a while and for whatever reason he hasn't broken through to the big leagues, it does seem like, whether it's the player gets a little tired of the organization or the organization gets tired of the player, for whatever reason, the mix just isn't working. You see the flaws of the guy more than what you actually originally liked about him. The first guy I really remember it with since being here was Bob Abreu with the Astros. He was, you know, everybody said he was so good, so good, so good. Then all of a sudden the Astros just didn't have any use for him and dumped him. And he obviously ended up being Bob Abreu with a short... and. You know, stopover in Tampa Bay, that would have been a nice guy for them to add. But, but, that's, but, ancient but, history. but that's a perfect example, though, because what you see, like, you've seen, like, Bobby Abreu still has the reputation of being a guy, you know, I guess the, the best way I describe is the anti Paul O'Neill. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Paul O'Neill was thought of as the guy who ran through the wall. Like, right. and so he probably had a reputation that was actually a better reputation than he was as a player. Not that he wasn't a good player, but, you know, yeah. Bobby Abreu. And he, you know, I'm not, I mean, but playing the hypothetical here, partly maybe it was like his personality and how he approached the game. They just, they saw the flaws mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, well, you know, we'll trade him off for Kevin Stalker. And you then later on go, you know, maybe we were a little focused a little bit too much on what we didn't like. Right. And maybe we should have focused more on, you know, the immense talent that he was. And Manny Ramirez is also a great example of that. And his flaws are obvious and you can see how they would wear on a team, but. He's one of the best hitters, not just now, but ever. So it, it's 
I'm sure it's a balancing act that teams always have to go through. Is a guy worth the trouble? Um, but it's good. It's good when teams see when players have sort of fallen out of favor in an organization and can scoop them up at a, a bargain rate. And and, and that's the, also the Rays something. Have done a good job of that in a couple of cases. And that's also something as a player. It's also that sign that like if you are stuck in an organization, at some point you will get. You're free. I mean, at some point you will get a chance somewhere else, but mm-hmm. the key is, is that when you do, you better make the most of it. I mean, yeah. Ryan Howard is a, is a great example of that on the sort of the other side of the coin. The Phillies seem to have no use for him, but wouldn't trade him, wouldn't trade him, and then obviously it all worked out for Ryan Howard. And again, but if you want to talk about focusing on the flaws with Ryan Howard, they tried to trade him, and basically what it came down to is no one ever seemed to really value Ryan Howard that much. So what happened is is that they ended up having to kind of, you know, you know, kind of hold on to him because they never got what they thought was fair value for him. And I mean that's really in some ways kind of a, you know, you look at you look back on it and it's like, wow, that was kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it was focusing on what he couldn't do rather than what he could. Well, I guess we better uh wrap up here. Uh another Marathon Baseball America podcast. Um if people want to read more about the signing deadline, we feel like we talked about it for a long time, but there's obviously a lot more we didn't even get a chance to touch on. Uh, a lot of the numbers we've thrown around, we'll we'll get online so people can can study. Right. If you look at the, overall the right numbers. now, you can study them yourself, and that we've got them updated on the advanced draft database. Data, excuse me, database for our subscribers. We're also going to start pulling some of those numbers together. Our, you know, you'll see stories kind of Aaron Fitz working on uh, as we. You know, speak about this. Aaron Fitz working on kind of a college winners and losers. Which teams, you know, right. lost guys that they thought they were going to get. Which teams may have, you know, gained a couple of guys. I think UCLA would probably Garrett Cole. Carolina probably. took a, a the University of North Carolina took several big hits with guys signing at the last minute. So uh, Aaron will have that perspective. I know Jim Callis is talking to a bunch of scouting directors today to sort of you know get their feelings in the aftermath and talk about the slotting system and the signing deadline and whether it works and what should be done going forward. And we'll also just, you know, crank out a lot of these numbers so you can look at them yourself and see what, see what you think they mean. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for us to, to decide what they mean sometimes when you look, when you look at all the numbers. Um, it obviously means a lot of people are getting a lot of money, but is that necessarily a bad thing? I do think the point you made earlier about it's, I don't think they expect to hold bonuses down, but it does help them control the rate of inflation. I think that may be, if that's what their goal is, it does seem to be accomplishing that purpose to some degree. And I'm going to keep us from wrapping up because I have one more point I want us to discuss. You know, we, hey, we're under 30 minutes still. For us, that's, you know, that's a short podcast. But so signing deadline August 15th basically means that in some cases, teams draft guys and they don't call them until August 14th. Right. And in other cases, so from agents. June, whatever, until August 14th, everybody just gets to hang out at the pool. Now, I mean, the one logical thing is, is they could move it up again. Now, there's a downside to that, which is, is that there is another class of guys who get drafted who kind of, it's the new version of draft and follows is that, you know, you, you draft a guy in, say, the 12th round and then you follow them at the Cape or you follow right. them wherever and you kind of decide over the summer, it would impact, it would hurt that. 
But if that you doesn't seem to be a huge player pool, then that just right. seems to be a, a pretty small number of guys. It seems like if you moved it to August first, or you moved it to July fifteenth. If you moved it to July fifteenth, I mean, the reality is, is that there's no negotiations going on out there right. that can't be done over a In month. In the last forty-eight hours, because they're going to be no waiting until you know is. they're going to wait till yeah. It, if we if if we drafted on June sixth and the deadline was June twelfth, they would actually figure out a way to get it all done, but. That would be too quickly because you are trying to sign. You, you know, you you have to figure out signing thirty guys out of right. the fifty draft and all that. But I do wonder if we'll eventually see it moved up again because what's happening still is is that you're still what it means is is that you're not getting these guys in until yeah, that's the big problem. These guys who sign late are not going to play this year, so and they are losing a summer of development. With with the college pitchers, it's not that big of a deal because the reality is is that you don't want those guys. They've already thrown a full college season. You don't want them throwing that much anyway. But with a guy like Pedro Alvarez, if he signs on June 15th and basically starts in, you know, high A, you, he, you could have a reasonable hope he would be in the you you could actually expect him maybe to be in the big leagues starting next season or mid-season next yeah. year. And the reality is, is now is is that he'll probably get his first real exposure. I mean, he might get a couple at bats, but he's probably going to go to you know AFL and Instructs will be his first real exposure. He'll head to spring training next year, still getting accustomed to the pro game, and so he'll probably start next year in Double yeah. A. And he's you know two three months behind where he would have been. Another interesting thing uh, that I've heard discussed, and I'm not, I mean, this would be a radical change for the baseball draft, is for players to declare before the draft whether they're in or out. It wouldn't, because right now, the way the baseball draft is, players don't have to. You, you don't declare I mean, at you all. Could, you could really draft a player who didn't want to play baseball. He obviously wouldn't sign, but they I mean. Do, right now they do in cases. Like you'll see a football player draft in the 48th round who may have had no interest ever in playing right, baseball. Right, you don't have to declare for the baseball draft. You, I mean, you can declare for it, but the process really is teams turn, if turn your in names the names turned of in. players and, and draft the names of players they turn in who meet eligibility rules. It would be interesting if you turned the tables and made players declare for the draft. Obviously, high school seniors, certain classes of players would be eligible, but if you made players declare for the draft and with the NCAA possibly getting more serious about watching baseball agents, you know, we've heard, <laughs> rumble, we've heard rumblings about that. So far, I don't think it's had any real effect. Um, I mean, if that ever happened, if you declare that would for the shake draft up the draft. And the NCAA started watching agents. I think you would have players just go through the draft one time, and that would change the face of things. Because right now, pretty much every significant high school player gets drafted, whether he intends to play pro ball or not. And it's fascinating if you look at like if you just flip through an, an average draft and look at the 40th through 50th rounds. Like scouts know the talent a lot of times out there. You know, they know that the guy, yeah, you may have to develop some and all, but you'll see a lot of names pop up in those mm-hmm. 40th, 50th rounds who three years later it's like, oh, that guy's a top 10 pick. Or when you look at teams signing these later round picks, this is sort of a new f- phenomenon with slotting. If you find out your first round guy's not going to sign, all of a sudden you're shifting money to the back of your draft and you see teams sign 20th round picks. It's not because the guy's not talented, it's because. We're drafting this guy just in case. Right, he's our we he's have our some extra money. He's our safety school. Right. But essentially, you know, if we don't get you know the guys that we wanted at the top end, we're not going to 
pay this guy four mil, but we'll pay this guy one point five by him out of college or one mil or you know five hundred thousand, and we still got a a, a a relatively elite talent who otherwise would you know would have just headed off to college. So I mean, we're really getting into pretty esoteric Inside. points. Hey, but that, you know, we know Baseball America listeners that would really be radical alterations to the draft. So that that's a whole other podcast, but. We could obviously talk about this all day if we needed to, and we and we probably will. We're just going to hit stop on the you know the podcast, but we'll continue we'll talking about it around time, the office. Not on your time. But thanks for listening to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. We'll be back again next Monday, probably talking some Olympics next Monday because we'll have just wrapped up the uh, the uh, semifinals and the gold medal round where. Looks like the U.S. is going to be in the medal round. That has not generated as much traffic as the draft for no, us. No, the not, Olympic baseball interest, not. Not really there. Very strong in the uh, John Manuel office, uh, maybe less so among the I baseball hate to say it, even John Manuel, I think, has lost Olympic fever. Um, it's I don't know what it is. I think the story, again, we're extending the podcast, <laughs> but we can't help it. The story you wrote about the U.S. playing Cuba, to me, illustrated the difficulties of Olympic baseball. I mean, going beyond the fact that you don't have major league players there, I think we can all <laughs> accept that. Okay. Especially I mean, when we see Matt Laporta get beamed uh, well, that's today. Another so. thing. That's not going to help. Matt Laporta taking one off the dome today <laughs> against China. But against Cuba, the game goes to extra innings. You play the crazy softball-esque extra innings rule, which is just for any baseball purist. I mean, not even a purist. For any baseball I would fan, rather not have the baseball in the Olympics right, than watch that that's again. That's ridiculous. And you... Uh, baseball, uh, USA Baseball takes a few injuries. Nick's Laporta possibly being injured. They had to take 12 pitchers because all the pitchers are under pitch limits because their organizations want to make sure they don't get overworked. So uh, it's almost like it's just so much trouble to have baseball in the Olympics. Well, it's, it is. It's something where I don't know another way to put this, and I don't want to sound jingoistic because I think that if Asia ran international baseball, Baseball would be fine. If Cuba ran international baseball, baseball would be fine. Americans ran, you know, Canada. Countries that actually understand baseball. I don't know any other way to put it, though. But the IOC is largely a kind of European-run mm-hmm. conglomerate, giant corporation. They can say amateur or whatever, but it's a giant corporation. And although we have new leadership that's coming, you know, actually from countries that understand baseball – IBAF, the International Baseball Federation, is in many ways kind of a European-run organization. And it just comes across, like, I don't know how to put it, but like when you're trying to follow Olympic baseball, and I give NBC credit, you can see every game online this year. That's great. No commentary, but still, that's great. But then you go to the box scores, the, oh, match, yeah, the score, match score, yeah, it's... which is done basically by IBAF. And it's just clear that these are people who don't even understand what baseball right, is. To give you an a, example, it's not a baseball style stat. When you go page. to the play-by-play, you, when team was on top, you don't necessarily know if they batted in the top or the bottom of the inning. When you go to the play-by-play, the top of the ninth may be all listed after the bottom of the ninth because and who the, cares when it happens? You even know, the descriptions of the plays are just crazy sometimes. Right, because you're talking about, I mean. I don't give – I'll say, Major League Baseball, yes, they want to grow the game, and they say we have the World Baseball Classic now, which is a way to grow the game. It is a better way to grow the game. You know why? Because the people running it understand what baseball is. Or, and I just don't think enough people – there's not any investment in Olympic baseball, really, by anyone other Outside than of USA Cuba. Baseball and Baseball Canada and, and Cuba. 
they all care. But, I mean, even NBC, I don't know if you got to see any of the tape delay broadcast of the U.S.-Canada game that was actually on, it wasn't on NBC, obviously. MSNBC, but it was MSNBC I think, or, or USA. USA. I mean, you know, you can tell when NBC doesn't care about a sport when they're broadcasting from the Olympic Center in New York. And that's where the two baseball oh, guys were. You can were. tell that they don't care. I mean, that's... Right after they did the, you know, they have Bill Clement doing table tennis, and then they have these guys. They're all just sitting in a studio in New York watching the video. Watching feed. the feed that's not even NBC cameraman running it, and sometimes they misplays it where all. You, and if you get the behind-the-plate feed with the screen where you can barely see the field, my son was like, why are there <laughs> why are all there rainbows on the screen? It's like, uh... Just but, a weird, and that weird really game. is what it comes down to. Like I know, and I, you know, and USA Baseball and is going to push to try to get baseball back in the Olympics. But the reality of it is, is that when it comes to the Olympics, all the Olympics cares about is the sports that have wide appeal around the world. But more importantly, the sports that NBC will cut that very will large money. checks. Yes, and NBC doesn't care whether baseball's in or out. That means that the IOC doesn't care whether baseball's in or out. And, I mean, I hate to say it because, you know, yes, it'll be bad to see that baseball is not in what's considered the, you know, the world arena. But I wouldn't I actually wouldn't mind if they had baseball and did it the way they used to when amateurs played. And I don't care if Cuba has, you know, quasi-professional players and we have college players. It's the Olympics. It's just fun to compete against Cuba. And our college players have shown they can compete with Cuba not always win but they can compete against them and you know going to the 96 Olympics where the U.S. didn't win but I mean it was fun to watch and that was a college team the the games with the pro players just I mean obviously we won the gold medal in 2000 that was a great story but this year the the shine definitely seems to be off and I don't know whether it's just because the coverage isn't there or what but it's just unfortunate the way baseball in the Olympics has evolved. And maybe being out in 2012 will give them a chance to rethink everything. But, um, and, but it seems like that the IOC's big push is that they want to make sure that there's major leaguers in it. And I don't think, I will say right now, that's it is not happen. worth, for a couple of reasons. One, the IOC is all about money. And so we've had multiple people explain to us, MLB and the IOC are never going to come together because when it comes to Olympic no baseball, MLB to do it. IOC is going to say, now 99% of this revenue is going to go to us, and here's the other 1%. You could maybe argue, and even this is debatable, you could argue, though, that it's, it makes sense for hockey to shut down its entire because season they need the publicity. in the Olympics. And because it's a centerpiece event right. at the Winter Olympics, it makes no sense on any level for Major League Baseball to do that. So, With that, we will... Kind of under the 40-minute mark here. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for listening to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. And we'll be back next week with, you know, plenty more to talk about. Thanks again.